Thank you, team. You can go ahead and be seated, and it's good to see you here today. Welcome to Crossroads Church. Uh, it's so uh, good to be back here to be uh, preaching today. At the end of July, my family and I, we got to uh, get away for a couple of weeks to go visit family in both Kentucky and South Dakota, and it was a good trip just to uh, be refreshed, to get ready for the fall, for school to start tomorrow. All the parents rejoice, right? All the... All the kids frown. Uh, but man, when I was away, I was like super grateful, uh, not just for the trip, but also because while I was away, James, Chris, and John, they absolutely brought it with their messages. Like we are, yeah, you are... <laughs> We are so incredibly blessed that God has put together this awesome team of preachers who are able to bring the truth of God in relevant ways and their unique styles. And not only uh, were these last three weeks just beautiful in terms of, of really conveying truth to us. And I, man, I was, last two weeks, I was sitting right where you were sitting, but also doing it in such a way that inspires our hearts. So I just sat back and I was like, God, man, I'm just so grateful for the team that you've put together here at Crossroads uh, Church. And so I'm just grateful that. I'm thankful for that. Um, if you are new with us, man, welcome to Crossroads Church. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor. And uh, today we're going to be in the book of Acts. And as we really open the scriptures today, I wonder if you, like me, have ever pondered uh, the question, have ever pondered the question, God, are you and me, are we good? Maybe you would say it a little bit different. Maybe, maybe you, would, you would think about the question this way, like, like, how holy do I have to be to be accepted by God? If you haven't asked that question yet in your life, at some point you will, undoubtedly, all of us do. And for me, I started asking questions like this when I was uh, early in my teenage years. If you don't know my story, part of my story is I grew up in a house where my younger sister at the age of five, her body was completely ravaged uh, by cancer. And most of my childhood, I lived in the reality that mortality was constantly knocking at our door, that when David writes in Psalm chapter 23 that I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I knew at a young age, before I was even a teenager, I knew what that was like. I knew what it was like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so uh, much of my childhood and in those early teenage years, I would find myself waking up at night, you know, in the middle of the night, and I would just look in the, uh, the ceiling and I'd just ponder, you know, the things that were happening in the world and in my life. And usually when I woke up, kind of the first thought that landed, honest to God, the first thought that would land it is, boy, I wonder if I'm going to have Oreos in my lunch tomorrow which the answer was always yes. Oreos to this day are still my favorite. And my mom would make sure that I had two double stuffed Oreos in my lunch every day, I think till I graduated high school. And I would, so I could peel off the tops, smash them together, make them a quadruple Oreo, and then um, eat it that way. But after I got through that question and, you know, got that out of the way, I would start to think about other things, more deep things. And I would think about like, I wonder what happens when I die. Like, is there something out there that I should have done or that I didn't do that from God's perspective I, I should or should not have done? Like, how does that impact? What is, you know, is, is there some prayers that, that I've said that I shouldn't have said or is there some prayers that I forgot to say? Like, how good is, how good, is good enough? If you've ever asked those questions, this sermon is for you. See, night after night, night after night, night after night, awake, wondering, God, are you and me, are we good? Wondering and pondering, am I holy enough? Today, we open the pages of our Bible to Acts. We're in this series where we're looking at this remarkable, inspiring book, really about the origin story of the church. 
And we've been walking through, because it's such a massive book, in seasons. And we're in season three. And part of season three, we're watching the church, despite great odds, become really the unstoppable kingdom of God. That's what's going on in this section in Acts. And as we open the pages of scripture to Acts chapter 15 today, you can go ahead and take out your Bible or Bible app and turn there. That as we turn there today, we enter into a section of scripture that's not preached very often. And the reason that this part of scripture is not preached very often is because it's a theological debate. And for most modern thinkers, we're like, (laughs) theological debates are like capital B boring. Like who needs them, right? And yet today, as we gather together, I want to convince you that this is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. And the reason it's one of the most important passages in all of Scripture is because at the center of the theological debate is the question, is the question, what do I have to do to be accepted by God? How holy do I have to be to be accepted by God? How much does my life have to change? How much do I have to clean up before I can trust in Jesus? How good is good enough. And the whole reason that this shows up in Acts chapter 15 is because Paul and Barnabas, two pretty important figures in the New Testament, remember Paul wrote like half the New Testament, that they're going around as missionaries and they're going into cities and they're proclaiming this message, believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized, and wouldn't you have it, thousands upon thousands of people are believing in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they're being baptized. I mean, what God does through these two men is just remarkable in the early years of the church. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they would move on to another city and this group of teachers would come in behind them and they would come in and they would say, you know what, Paul, what Paul and Barnabas spoke to you, that's all good, but there's some things that, that you need to do in order for you to be like, to be, for one of you to be us. Like there's some things that you're going to have to clean up in your life before you can consider yourself a Christian. And so you have all these new believers who are totally confused because Paul and Barnabas said, you just need to trust fully in Jesus. Now these teachers are coming in and they're saying, well, there's some other things that you actually have to do in order to be saved, in order to be considered a Christian. And one of those things was a pretty big issue. So let's just jump into it. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse one, you'll see pretty quickly the big issue. It says, but some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So these are the guys that are following Paul and Barnabas into the city. And here's their message to new believers. That unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. (laughs) Can you run that by me again? (laughs) Yeah. Unless you have this particular surgery, you can't be considered a Christian. Paul must have forgot that, right? Like that wasn't anywhere in what he presented to us. And here's what's going on. Here's what they're saying. That in order to be considered a Christian, in order to be saved, you first had to become Jewish. And the mark of Judaism was when a little boy was born, when Mel was born, they had this particular surgery that marked them as Jewish. And Gentile guys, (laughs) you don't have that. So we just need to get that taken care of for you, no big deal, and then you'll be like one of us. And so you got all these Gentile men going, whoa, 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 honey, I need to pray about this before I make any decisions. I mean, you're talking about a theological opposition that could have stopped the kingdom of God in its tracks. Here it is. And truth be told, it made sense. I mean, a lot of people saw Judaism as the, or uh, Christianity as the extension of Judaism. That is, that you had to be a part of the Moses Club before you could be part of the Jesus Club. And this was just like the entrance into the club. This is just what you had to do if you wanted to be a part of the club. 
And so here's what happens, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversations of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And so Paul and Barnabas are having this argument with these teachers who keep following up with like, hey, there's some other things you still got to do in this. And there's this argument that's happening. And one of the leaders stands up and goes, hey, we need this settled. We need to get this figured out. You need to head up, Paul and Barnabas. You take a couple of guys, you head up to Jerusalem so that we can get this all figured out. Now, the reason that they went up to the church in Jerusalem is because the Jerusalem church was like the big daddy church of the first century. There were about 17, 18 years past the crucifixion of Jesus. And the church in Jerusalem has emerged as the most influential church of the day under the leadership, under the pastor, under the shepherding of James, the brother of Jesus. And so Paul heads up to Jerusalem and he says, look, we need to talk. And subsequently, the first ever church business meeting happens. And the who's who of the first century Christians all show up. I mean, Paul and Barnabas are there. You have gospel writers like Matthew and Mark and John. Peter shows up. You got Luke, one of the other gospel writers. He's there as well. And Paul begins to speak and he says, hey, look, for the last several years, I've been planting churches. That Barnabas and I, we're heading into these places and we're sharing the gospel and people are receiving Jesus. They're trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And you got to know, that my message is simple. That I've been preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, that he went to the cross for the forgiveness of sins, that three days later he rose out of the grave, and if they, if that person repents of their sins and trusts Jesus fully as their Lord and Savior, then they'll be saved. He says, that's my message. That's how simple it is. And people are responding to that, and you just got to know that nowhere, nowhere along the way, have I told people that they got to be part of the Moses Club in order to be saved? Nowhere along the way have I told people that they first have to become followers of Moses in order to become followers of Jesus. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, for some of us in this room, you know, who have been reading the Bible for a really long time, that sometimes we can read through the Bible so quickly, and in doing so, we miss important details, like one that's right here. That what we have here is that the message of Jesus, the gospel, is so influential that apparently some of the Pharisees are now following Jesus. Like, the Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are the guys that Jesus constantly butted head with when he was walking on this earth. It was the Pharisees who ultimately are the ones responsible for crucifying Jesus. It was the Pharisees who are arresting the disciples. It's the Pharisees who are killing the followers of Jesus. Those are the Pharisees. And apparently the message of Jesus is so powerful, so influential, that some of the Pharisees have now joined the church. That they're that they're walking with Jesus. I mean, this is, this is an amazing, this is an amazing moment here in church history. 
And yet at the same time, there's this part of their old life that keeps creeping in. That they are so committed to the law that they cannot imagine that you don't have to act like us to be a part of us. Because of their commitment to the law, they were confusing being culturally Jewish with what it meant to be saved. And so they're out in the world following Paul and Barnabas around and, and they're teaching and believing that the Gentiles had to become Jewish. That is, that they had to follow all of the laws that we find in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy in order to be saved. That, that, that's what they had to do. It meant that the Gentiles had to change their whole way of living. What they ate, how they ate, what they washed, how they washed, the activities that they did in their life. It meant for men that they had to get this procedure done. And their belief was that when the Gentiles had their lifestyle completely cleaned up in this way, then they could become a Christian. Then they could be saved. And so Paul comes storming into Jerusalem like a hurricane. And he says, look, boys, we're not being clear. We got all these new believers goofed up on what it means to be Christian, what it means to be saved. Now, before we go dogpiling on the Pharisees here, that for those of us who've been around a church a while, we, we kind of get the Pharisees and, and it's easy to take shots at them. But today, just for one day, let's just be a little bit lighter on them. Because the reality is, is that this is the story of all of us. The longer that you're a church person, the longer that you're a part of a church, the more real this becomes in our own lives for all of us. It does. I'll never forget uh, the first time about a decade ago here at Crossroads Church when I preached in jeans. Uh, on that day, unbeknownst to me, um, I set history here at Crossroads Church as I was the first one who ever preached in jeans. And I'll never forget watching people, a part of this church, stand up and protest and walk out as I preached, only to find out later what they were angry about. That somewhere in the Crossroads uh, Christian law book, there was a law that said, pastors shall not preach in jeans. And on that day, I didn't fit. I'll never forget when uh, my brother came home, my younger brother came home from college with a tattoo. And my dad was emotionally somewhere between destruction of biblical proportions and psychotic breakdown because in the Manning family code of Christian conduct, tattoos weren't a part of it. Some of you, you might laugh knowing me today, but there was a season in my life, particularly in college and when I went to seminary, that if I saw you drinking alcohol, I would have questions about your salvation. The point is, is that we all settle into our version of Christianity. And when someone shows up or does something that doesn't fit with our version of Christianity, we suddenly become Pharisees and dismiss the people who don't live according to our laws. See, it's the same today as what the early church was wrestling with back then. It's a tension that the church has always had to deal with. Well, the business meeting continues. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed them by the hearts of, by faith. 
their hearts by faith. So for those, again, who have maybe spent some time in the Bible, you realize like how important this moment is, that this is Peter who is saying this. Because it wasn't that long ago that Peter was actually on the opposite side of this argument. And it's Peter and Paul who literally come to blows in the church of Antioch over this very issue where Paul gets so fired up. You can read all this in Galatians chapter 5, by the way. That he gets so fired up that he says, for those who are like, you know, who don't quite understand this yet, who are willing to go down this road when it comes to, you know, circumcision, I see you, Peter. I wish that you would all just immaculate yourselves. In other words, while you got the knife out, why stop at circumcision? Go ahead and just cut it all off and see how holy you are. <laughs> like, well, Paul, settle down. You know? Ain't nobody got to go there. And now here Peter is speaking in this debate, and he says, it's God who knows the hearts. Not just the outside. Not just the way they dress. Not just the way that we eat, not the things that we do. It's God who sees the heart. And God has accepted these unknowing Gentiles just like he accepted us. And everybody there goes, oh, yeah. But Pete, they still dress wrong and don't eat right. Peter says, hold on, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe, verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter says, come on, boys. <laughs> when it comes to the law, we haven't even been able to do it. Our fathers weren't able to do it. Why are we demanding that these new believers do something that we can't even do ourselves? And Peter refers to it as a yoke. A yoke is this big old heavy piece of wood that was put around an animal's neck, usually an ox, to pull a wagon to help in the farm. In the scriptures, when you read it, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the yoke always represents burden. It always represents oppression. And Peter looks out in this discussion, in this debate, and he says, why are we trying to weigh these new believers down with burdens? The Old Testament law, you couldn't do it. It was a burden to you. You couldn't live up to it. Why would we do this to the new believers? He says, don't you know? Don't you know that when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, it always begins with taking burdens off? <laughs> However, religion's the opposite. It's always about placing burdens on. That the gospel of Jesus is always begins always with taking burdens off. It's about freedom. Religion begins with placing burdens on. And here's where grace and truth come colliding in to each other. And for some of you, this is where the tension ramps up in your life. Because what the gospel does is it takes the burden of the presence that is trying to prove that I belong. It takes off the burden of the past the guilt and the, uh, and the uh, remorse that I feel because of what I've done. And it takes away the burden of the future, this fear that I won't be able to live up, this fear that I won't measure up to the standard. That the gospel always begins by removing the burdens of the past, the present, and the future. 
But with religion, it always begins with putting burdens on. It's why I always cringe when someone finds out that I'm a pastor and they go, oh yeah, I'm religious. Religion is about do's and don'ts. It's about do this and do this, do that. Then, then God will love you. When Jesus arrived on this earth, religion died. The moment that Jesus appeared, religion dies, and the gospel comes smashing in and says, God can purify a heart before you can purify a life. Peter says, don't you see that God sees the hearts, and God can purify your heart, and if he can do it for you, he certainly can do it for your family, for your friends, for your coworkers, for your neighbors, for the people that you're rubbing shoulders with. And Peter begins, as he's going down this road, he begins to help us frame the Old Testament. He helps us see that when it comes to the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is simply showing and has always been the showing of God's redemptive plan. That the Old Testament shows God's plan. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament, I love the Old Testament. It's, it's, uh, I believe that when it comes to the covenants that we see in the Old Testament, that they really create the backbone or the structure for how we're to understand the Bible as we read it. Take, for example... Uh, the Noahic covenant, the story of Noah. We all know the story of Noah, right? That God declares war on sin by flooding the earth. He takes Noah and his family and animals. He piles them all on a big boat. The floodwaters come. Everything is reset. As the floodwaters recede, God starts over and he begins by giving a covenant to Noah. And the symbol of the covenant is the rainbow. You remember the story? What's most interesting is that when it comes to the Jewish language and the culture of this time, that there was no word for rainbow, it was just bow as in military bow. And the symbol that God gives for the covenant is him laying down his bow. Even more interesting, that every time that we see the bow in creation after a rainstorm, we see that the bow is pointed to the heavens, not to earth. It's a symbol to remind us that the next time God declares war on sin, that the arrows will be pointed at him, not us. We read the New Testament, and that's exactly the way that it unfolds, isn't it? See, every page of the Old Testament is revealing the redemptive plan of God. Peter is helping us see that the Old Testament shows God's plan. That from the beginning to the end, the Old Testament says, here's sin. It reveals who we are, that we are sinners. That, that the way that, that I live is not the way that it should be. That I'm different than what God created to me to be because of my sin, because of the choices that I've made in my life. And yet at the very same time, from beginning to end, the Old Testament says there is a God. And let me tell you what he's going to do about the sin problem. A Savior is coming. And for us to be able to wrap our minds to be theologically correct in this moment is to understand that when it comes to the Old Testament, that the Old Testament was never a staircase to your righteousness. This is where the Jews got all goofed up. This is where the Pharisees got offline, that the Old Testament was never designed as a staircase to your own righteousness. In other words, do the laws and you will be righteous. But rather, it was always meant as a teacher that would ultimately point us to Jesus. Peter says, come on, boys, we couldn't live up to the law. And the reason that we couldn't live up to the law is because the law was meant to show us our sins, that Jesus comes to save us and give us freedom through the grace that he offers us. Peter wraps up 
Paul stands up, he speaks, then James, the brother of Jesus, gets up and talks. They're all preachers, they all got to use their words. And then it comes, right, to the end. And James is standing there, everybody's looking at him, waiting for a decision on this debate. And here's what he says, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble, that is, make difficult, those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. Like Moses is getting this price. You don't gotta worry about Moses. Everybody knows Moses. For he is read every Sabbath in all of the synagogues. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas head out on their way. James says, look, bottom line is this, that as the church begins to circle the globe, as the church begins to make impact throughout the world, it is my decision that we should not make it difficult for new believers, that we should not put unnecessary burdens onto people as they are making their decision to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And everybody there is nodding their head. And James goes, we need to write a letter. Luke, you got it? Luke goes, I got it. Write this to them. That when it comes to receiving Jesus as your Savior, stay away from those things that come from idols. And sexual immorality, would you like to define that? No. And tell them not to strangle things and stay away from blood. Anything else? Nope, that's it. What about the law? No law. Only Jesus all the time. Send the letter. You do that, you're in. Join the church. You know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like the words of Jesus, doesn't it? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That in these two commands, all of the law, all of the Old Testament is summed up. Love God and love those who he puts in your life. See, what was decided on that day in Jerusalem is that when it comes to Jesus, that Jesus is not my way to salvation. Jesus is my salvation. Jesus isn't a stepping stone as I begin my journey to being saved. Jesus is me being saved. It's not Jesus plus law. It's just Jesus all the time. And so the church gets through the first ever business meeting. And they come away agreeing that both truth and grace need to coexist in the church in such a way that the church embodies all of it to the world's. And so the question, as we pull ourselves out of Acts chapter 15 and into the modern world in which we live today, is what does this look like as we continue the story of the church some 2,000 years later? And I think the answer is this, that as people of faith, we must always guard against our tendency to move towards law by constantly and intentionally choosing grace. That as believers in Jesus, as people who have put their faith in Jesus, as people who have trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we must always guard, we must always fight against our tendency to move towards law. Because here's the deal. 
all of us have a tendency to move towards law. There is something deep inside us that wants to define what Christianity is. And when we get that answer, if you don't, then you're not in. You're not in. That there's something inside of all of us that wants to set up my own category of what Christianity is. That we must constantly fight and guard against that temptation, that tendency to move towards law by constantly, intentionally, strategically choosing grace. And this is both deeply theological and very practical. That when it comes to the theological significance of this, when the church loses its way and teaches that, that believers, that we're not justified by grace alone as the New Testament teaches, but that we also have to be holy in all of these ways, that you have to do this and that in order for God to truly love you. In that moment, pharisaicalism is rebirthed. In that moment, religion takes roots. And in that moment, we begin to place burdens as we come up and create lists of clean and unclean activities to be a part of. Listen, we have the tendency, we have the capacity, and if we are not careful, theologically, crossroads could slip into legalism just like the early church tried to. It's also practical. Practically speaking, we have seen in church history the effects of this kind of thinking where we lean towards law rather than grace. We see it in the middle-aged church where the middle-aged church ruled out theater because of its origins, that the early church ruled out dancing because they thought that it would elicit sexual desire. It ruled out perfume and makeup. They said, if God intended you to smell like flowers, he would have put them on top of your head. Like when it comes to the church, it is always slipping out of the idea that you are saved by grace and making it difficult for people to come and know Jesus. And I'm just telling you, when we get this, like the early church get this, then the church thing, this whole church thing that we're a part of isn't just about do's and don'ts, but it's about a group of people moving the message of Jesus into a big world that needs a big, big savior. And if you're here today and you're struggling with, with getting this in your life, if you're struggling with, with how to, to apply this, I want you just to look at your own life. And I want to ask you, did God wait for you to be cleaned up before he accepted you? The answer is no. The truth of Romans that we find in Romans is that while we were still sinners, that is, while we were still far away from God, that Jesus died for us. And so back to our first question. How holy do you have to be to be accepted by God? Well, at least according to the first church business meeting, there at the church of Jerusalem, not at all. Not at all. And the reality is, is that there is nothing that we can do on our own to be accepted by God. And that truth will either wreck you or it'll free you. 
That truth has, has the capacity to wreck you and that you in your pride go, I can do this. I don't need a savior. Just give me a list and I'll get it done and I'll take care of it myself. You will spend the rest of your life burdens, unable to meet the standard of holiness in terms of your acceptance by God. You won't be able to do it. It'll wreck you. Or you can find freedom in it when you realize that you could never do it, but Jesus did it on your behalf. That through his life and ultimately his death, he moves in such a way that you can be accepted by God. And when you simply place your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, trusting in him, that you can have the acceptance of a God who loves you. And for some of you today, come on, for some of you today, it's time for you to believe. It's time for you to believe that there's a God who accepts you. There's a God who loves you, that there's a God who wants to be with you as you walk through this life. If that's you today, I'm just gonna invite you to take out your phone even right now and text the name of Jesus to the number that Grant mentioned earlier, 720-513-1933. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you today having looked at this passage in Acts chapter 15 and undoubtedly, undoubtedly pondered the question of how holy do I have to be in order to be accepted by you. Father, there's such great tendency in our lives, particularly those of us who have been around church for a while, to want to add rules and laws and burdens to people's life. Lord, to move in such a way that they become shiny clean before they trust you. Father, I pray that you would remove that from us. Jesus, I pray that, you, that we would see you so clearly, that we'd be so inspired with the life that you lived and the death that you had on the cross and your resurrection three days later, that we would see that there is nothing that we can do on our own that will ultimately save us, but it is only by your grace. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in us constantly reminding us of the grace that we've experienced. And as we experience grace in our own lives, that we would be the first to pass it on to others. That as we share the message of Jesus in the world in which we live, as we continue the story of Acts today, that we would not get caught up in legalism, that you would guard us from that and that we would help people find freedom in the grace that you have to offer. Jesus, I pray for those who are ready to believe today. Jesus, I pray that as you lead them to that place of conviction, as you help them understand that, that you see their heart, Lord, that that would free them in this world. That the burdens would fall off and that they would come running to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.